Hey everybody, it's Jessica. Welcome to another special episode of Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. What you're about to hear is a conversation that we recorded as part of Loyola Law School's Journalist Law Program. It's a conversation I had with Professor Dan Epps about all things Supreme Court. As you can imagine, I had a great time geeking out with him about ways to reform the court, big cases pending before the court, and it was just a pleasure to be able to talk at length with him about these really important issues. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back. Day two of the Journalist Law School. I think you can see from my face and hear from my expression, I am really excited about this panel because I get to talk to Dan Epps and I get to talk about the Supreme Court. And we all get to hear from a true expert in the field. Dan Epps is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. He's a nationally recognized expert. And I'm not kidding. He absolutely is a nationally recognized expert. A lot of people put that in their bios. It's not always true. He really is. He's an expert on the Supreme Court, the intersection of constitutional law and theory, criminal law and procedure, and federal courts. He's an experienced Supreme Court litigator, and he knows a little bit about the Supreme Court having clerked on the court for Justice Anthony Kennedy. He co-hosts a podcast called Divided Argument that analyzes the court's decisions, and we are also recording with his permission. We're recording this conversation for the Journalist Law School and um, for my podcast, Passing Judgment. And with that Dan, I really just am so thrilled that you're here, and I want to start. You made it so easy because you've written so many good things about the court that I basically just have to go through the table of contents from any one of your pieces and say, tell us about this. Tell us about this. So let's start with, you have a lot of solutions for how to fix problems with the Supreme Court, but before we get to the solutions... What are the biggest problems facing the court right now? Um, Well, uh, Jessica, thanks so much for that great introduction. I think that there are a lot of problems, but there's also a lot of disagreement about what the problems are. And I think we should separate out a couple different categories of reform. And I've written about both categories. One is sort of, you know, kind of tweaking the institution, tweaking maybe the way they deal with cases um, and so forth. Maybe we think there's some kind of, you know, problem with the kinds of cases the court selects, or maybe there's a problem with the kinds of advocates that appear before the court. Um, You know, maybe we could sort of think of those as sort of institutional tweaks, kind of small bore reforms. And then on the other hand, there's really kind of big structural reforms that would really change maybe who the justices are, how the justices are selected, uh, how long they serve, and uh, so forth. And I think each of those categories, um, it's going to depend a little bit on, you know, whether you think what kind of problem you see. In terms of the structural reforms, those depend on um, identifying some significant, you know, structural concerns about the court. So uh, one problem there is people think, uh, the justices stay on the court uh, too long, they have too much power. And so exactly what what you think about that informs what kind of reform you might adopt. So if you believe that, you might endorse term limits for Supreme Court justices. Um, or uh, maybe you think the, the confirmation process has gotten too polarized. That might suggest another kind of structural reform. Maybe you think the justices have too much power to strike down federal legislation. You might be, you might support something like uh, jurisdiction stripping, limiting the court's jurisdiction to strike down federal statutes. So, um, you know, there's a lot of disagreement about that. I mean, I tend to see, um, think looking at the structural side, because uh, I think that tends to be more interesting to most people, um, I tend to see, you know, kind of a, a related constellation uh, of problems, you know, too much power for individual justices, uh, justices exercising sort of too much power in terms of uh, the court exercising too much power in terms of a veto over legislation, law becoming increasingly polarized, the sort of polarization of the confirmation process, and the sort of randomness uh, inherent in the court's membership because it turns so much on you know, whether Justice Ginsburg dies in September versus January uh, and other kind of unpredictable events like that. You and I and so many other people, you know, having to explain on what was that September 
23rd, I'm getting my dates wrong, of 2020, why so many huge issues in our country could change dramatically because Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away eight weeks earlier or later indicates that there is a serious problem with the institution. I mean, when literally millions of people then have to wonder what's going to happen to my access to, you know, fill in the blank, reproductive rights uh, for other people, my access to guns, um, my access to health insurance more generally, um, my freedom from discrimination at work. It, It really just puts sadly such a fine point on the problems that we see with the court. Um, Is the court different from when you clerked? I mean, has, have problems been um, increasing as it seems to me problems in the rest of our country have also increased? So uh, I clerked 2009 to 2010 and that was, I clerked for Justice Kennedy and that was, an era when he was really at the center of the court and the court was kind of divided uh, outside of him, you know, sort of four more conservative justices, four more liberal justices. And he sort of uh, held the middle. And I'd say, I think it's fair to describe him as a conservative justice, but he sometimes did unpredictable things. You know, he authored important opinions on gay rights and um, you know, a, a couple of things have happened since then. I mean, one is that he's been, replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, who, you know, we're still waiting to see a little bit, but I think that most people think he's more conservative than Justice Kennedy on a number of issues. Uh, But then also we have the court, you know, the center of the court moving to the right with the replacement of Justice Ginsburg by Justice Barrett. And so um, we may have a court that is sort of going to vote more consistently with the interests of Republicans rather than Democrats. And I think, um, you know, that's a problem in two ways. One, it's a problem if you are a Democrat or you, you know, amenable to to Democratic positions because you're not going to like what the court does. But more generally, I think um, the more partisan we see the court as acting, the less justification there is for the court having as much power uh, as it does, especially given the kind of arbitrariness and, you know, frankly, unfairness in how justices get on the court. Um, why does President Trump get three nominees on the court? Obama, in, 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 in a four, one four-year term, why does President Obama get only two nominees in uh, two four-year terms in uh, over eight years? I think that's kind of hard to justify, um, you know, from original principles, from sort of first principles. And um, it's, it would matter less if the justices were just kind of deciding these um, kind of trivial statutory interpretation cases. But, you know, when it really amounts to giving justices a veto over federal legislation, particularly on, you know, grounds that are not always, you know, clearly derivable from the text or meaning of the Constitution, uh, I think that's troubling. Um, I wonder how much a number of people who are now pushing for reform would be pushing for the same reform if we were in uh, the Warren court and people were maybe more pleased with the actual outcomes of the decisions, then it seems to me that there's less of a push for reform. So I, I want to get back to that in a second, but I got a question that made me think I didn't really set the table the correct way for this conversation. So let me step back briefly and say, we're talking about the most powerful court in the country. And we're talking about the United States Supreme Court and how it's structured. And I hope that we'll have time also to get to some of the, uh, although I did it quickly, some of the bigger cases this term. And um, I got a question that made me think I need to answer this right off. So in our country, we obviously have a state court system and we have a federal system. State courts and state Supreme Courts are the final word on state law. Federal courts and the federal Supreme Court is the final word on federal law. How do you sometimes have the Supreme Court making a decision that comes from a state Supreme Court because that state Supreme Court has made a decision that uh, either directly concerns federal law or implicates, for instance, a provision in the constitution. And that's how you see this crossover from, and I'm sorry, I'm just absolutely incapable of doing this without using my hands, 
the state court system going over to the federal system. And um, state court judges oftentimes either elected or appointed, and then maybe they stand for retention elections. Uh, Federal judges in the Constitution, as the federal judge who I clerked for, sometimes very kindly reminded me, have lifetime appointments. Uh, When we would sometimes disagree about something, he would, in the nicest way you can possibly say to a 25-year-old who is not nearly as smart as she thinks she is, Jessica, one of us in this room has lifetime appointment. It's me. We're going to go with this. Um, So having then set the table for the conversation, Dan, back to what we were just talking about was this issue of, you know, how much of us would, and I I would count myself in this category, be pushing for reform if, um, if the court were making decisions that we were pleased with. And maybe I want to shift that question a little bit and say, why do you think we are having this conversation now? I don't remember, and maybe this is a ver- just a function of my age, but I don't remember that we had these very serious discussions about Supreme Court reform 10 years ago and 15 years ago. What, what was the straw that broke the camel's back here? So that's a great question. I just wanted to add one thing to what you were saying about the sort of structure of the court. Everything you said was correct, but I think one interesting point that kind of underscores maybe why some people think it's urgent is uh, there's now this weird strain uh, among Supreme Court justices who think that they can now reinterpret state law if the state courts do something they don't like on questions of federal elections. I tend to think that's a little nuts, but that sort of came up in Bush versus Gore. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's a very in the weeds point, but it's one that actually might have a ton of relevance in hopefully not, but it, but in future, uh, presidential elections. And, uh, it's one reason why I'm worried about what the court is doing, but so, um, you're you're so right. Sorry. You're so right to stress that point. And it's not in my usual, like, here's a structure, but it's such a big, it's so weird, right? It's, it seems so so wrong. Um, but, uh, but I think that's a great question. So obviously I think, you know, it's hard to deny that, um, you know, at least who maybe who would be making the criticisms would probably look different in a world where we imagine um, the, the court's membership looking different. And I think but I think that uh, maybe the, the analogy to the Warren court is maybe not quite the right place to look. The reason being the Warren court was actually um, a quite bipartisan uh, court. I mean, some of the um, most important Warren Court decisions were actually, you know, Chief Justice Warren was a Republican appointee. Justice Brennan was a Republican appointee. And so it was an era when we didn't see the jurisprudence of the court tracking kind of partisan ideology the way that we do now. And it's, it was before the federal society, before the rise of originalism, before the rise of a bunch of different kind of jurisprudential schools that really map on to party. Now, we did see some people arguing for you know, things that are not quite the same kind of Supreme Court reform, but arguing for things like the right of states to ignore Supreme Court rulings uh, and so forth. But I think maybe the the question I would ask is, imagine, um, you know, Justice Scalia dies, uh, the uh, Republican Senate sort of uh, blockades Obama's appointment as they did, but then Hillary Clinton is elected and she gets uh, a narrow Democratic Senate majority. She appoints, you know, someone uh, quite liberal, maybe more liberal than Merrick Garland to replace Justice Scalia. She ends up getting to uh, make a couple more appointments to the court. Uh, And then we have um, sort of a six to three liberal majority, uh, super majority poised to do a bunch of uh, aggressive things that conservatives won't like. Um, I think we would see a bunch of the same arguments uh, that would be made by different people. Um, and the thing that I want to note is the fact that who's making the arguments might end up uh, turning a lot on whose ox is, be, is, is being gored doesn't mean that the arguments are wrong. Um, and, uh, in fact, the very, you know, in some ways, the fact that it's going to change so much depending on, um, who happens to control the court, which really is a matter of kind of random chance to some degree, um, should, should give us some pause and say, you know, do we, you know, as you said, do we really want a system where the answers to these really, really important questions, uh, about our society, you know, what should the appropriate balance between the state and religion be? You know, sh- what kinds of healthcare rights should people have access to? Should should there be a right to have to an abortion? Things like that. Um, 
that they shouldn't necessarily depend on just you know when somebody dies um that they should bear some sort of more predictable relationship to uh electoral outcomes uh and so forth now i want to march through some of these proposed reforms but first we got a question from uh, tara and i think it's maybe fair to start here, which is if you could say one reform, which one would it be? So I think I would certainly emphasize some kind of structural reform that would uh, fix um, some of this randomness that I'm talking about. That's one of the kind of guiding things I've thought about. And there's different ways to do that. Uh, One would be 18 year term limits where each president gets two. Um, I think there are things to like about that. There are things not to like about it. Um, in my own work with uh, Ganesh Sitaraman, who teaches at Vanderbilt, um, we've proposed uh, some uh, other reforms that I think are fair to describe as a little wackier, um, one of which got picked up by uh, Mayor Pete during the Democratic primary. And the uh, and basically, we came up with this scheme where you'd imagine sort of having a certain number of the justices kind of... Um, designated for the two parties. You'd have five kind of justices who are kind of designated for Democrats, five who are designated for Republicans, and then those 10 would uh, identify uh, sort of on an annual basis five justices from the lower courts by consensus to kind of join them. The idea being there that ultimately you end up with a court um, that is not going to get too skewed in any one partisan direction, and some of the deciding votes are going to be slightly more uh, ideologically unpredictable judges. Um, A lot of people, you know, some people like our proposal, a lot of people criticized it. And frankly, um, we were never wedded to the details. I think we we say in the article, we are putting these ideas on the table just to get people thinking about these issues and coming up with some solution to them. And so coming up with some solution to that problem of of randomness, um, I think would be would be really good one where we don't all kind of have a heart attack when uh, Justice Ginsburg dies or cheer. Right. That's that's the thing. It's kind of ghoulishly. If you're Republican, if you're conservative, you're ghoulishly cheering when she dies in September. Um, And I just don't I don't think that's a great way to run a country. I don't think that that's how we should make decisions on these really important issues. Remind us all what that proposal was called. Uh, That was called the balanced bench proposal. Right. And we also had in that article, we offer uh, a different one, uh, which we call the, I think we call the lottery court, where mm-hmm. you basically say all the lower court judges of the courts of appeals, there's, you know, nearly 200 of them. They now basically, you get an appointment that says you're a Supreme Court justice, but then uh, the court sits in kind of random panels. Um, and so no one justice has uh, that much influence over the court. And there's some other tweaks you might have to do, you might have to do some ideological balancing, uh, partisan balancing of the panels. Um, But the idea uh, there being that we don't have, you know, these death matches about the one spot. I mean, that's another thing that contributes to this is the court is small. Uh, In global perspective, nine justices is actually pretty small for um, a constitutional court. And that means any one appointment is really, really consequential. And, you know, the, the parties will basically do whatever it takes to get somebody on the court. You said, you know, when somebody has a heart attack, and I, I felt like the sentence should be, we don't all have a heart attack when somebody has a heart attack. I mean, yeah. and, and I remember, I think it was February 16th, 2016, Justice Scalia passed away. And it was, uh, it was a moment where, I mean, this is the system we created where people, somebody died, and you have to have a human moment that somebody died. And then it's yeah. a half second. And yeah. people are like, oh, and this. Yeah. We've got we can change the balance of power in the court. And that just can't be the right approach. But you understand yeah. why people think and I mean yeah, I I think the, it, it matters, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Because it desperately matters. I think the yeah. first text I got was somebody who was part of a gun control group and she said, Is this our moment? Yeah. Um, and and I think in both the instances of the the recent uh deaths of Supreme Court justices. Both times you have uh, Leader McConnell, Mitch McConnell, sort of saying within a couple of hours, uh, if that, uh, what he's going to do. You know, with Scalia, he says there will we are not going to fill this. Um, which we need to let the next the last, uh, let the next president do it. With Ginsburg, he says we will fill this. Um, and you know, 
and that's one problem. I guess one other highly related problem we haven't really talked about is for the justices who don't die in office, they basically have the power to, to influence their successor because they can engage in what we call strategic retirement. Right. You can sort of say, look, um, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I think that uh, this is the last time, you know, we're going to have, you know, a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate for, you know, maybe eight years and I'm getting a little old. Why don't I retire now? Make sure that um, Obama can uh, appoint my replacement or, or Biden or whatever. And again, that's also strange. Uh, these are not Supreme Court seats should not be these kind of entitlements to be, um, you know, handed down from one justice to their preferred successor. Again, who's on the court should be, you know, a predictable thing that has to do with, uh, with politics and democracy. Right. Not inherited. I mean, this is how we have the hashtag now, right? Breyer must retire. Yeah. And I, you know, and also, you know, he, he seems to be disinclined to listen to that. Um, and I, again, don't think we should all be nervously trying to decide, you know, uh, trying to worry about whether this octogenarian wants to, you know, retire to his uh, island home. He has a number of uh, fancy houses um, or not. It should just be something that, you know, we, we know it's going to happen and it's going to turn on, you know, who wins elections and so forth. Um, right. It shouldn't be that the most important uh, thing to determine what our rights are is an actuarial table, but yeah. here, but here we are. So um, I want to be responsive to the questions, and I think the best way to do that. There's so many things I would personally love to talk to yeah. you about. We already have done this a little bit, but could we do the list of you know, the big reforms? So you talked yeah. about. Um, and I want to recommend for everybody, and maybe um, Brian or Samantha, you could drop uh, some of Dan's uh, articles into the chat, or I can um, refer people to it later. We're going to send around PowerPoint so I can include it in uh, that email. Uh, but you talk about the balanced bench. You talk about the lottery system. Uh, you mentioned the idea of term limits. Um what are some of the other, before we talk about kind of how they could be implemented, what are some of the other big reforms? You mentioned something called jurisdiction yeah. split, uh, stripping. I know what that means, I think, and hope, but can you describe for everybody? I think people understand intuitively what term limits mean. Yeah. You describe I, might, I might give them a few more um, details about how that, that might work. Um, in practice, because I think I think I think some of the the mechanics are are interesting, and then I'll also talk about jurisdiction stripping. So um, you know, I think everyone understands term limits mean justices sit on the court for a, a limited term. Um, but you know, the people and there's a lot of people who support term limits, but the people who have proposed them have kind of a clever way of doing it. They say there's nine justices, let's give each of them 18 year terms, and then we'll stagger them. Um, so that, you know, basically each Congress, at the beginning of each Congress, there's a vacancy. Um, and, uh, you know, that proposal, I think, is actually that particular version of term limits has the most support uh, behind it of any uh, particular reform. And I think it, it does because it's kind of seen as sort of nonpartisan. It doesn't really, we don't know who it's going to benefit going forward. It's just kind of this good government uh, proposal. And I think that there's uh, a lot to like there. There's some difficult questions about implementation. Uh, jurisdiction stripping is the idea that uh, the Supreme Court only has, you know, the Supreme Court um, is a constitutional body. It's, it's mentioned in the constitution and the justices get to sit for life. But the court only has the power to hear cases insofar as Congress has granted jurisdiction um, to do so, at least absent, you know, some some limits on that that are that are not fully resolved. Um, and the idea being is that Congress could just say, you know, starting tomorrow, um, the court won't have jurisdiction to hear these kinds of cases or to issue these kinds of injunctions, um, and that would effectively limit the court's power over those that set of cases, um, absent a belief that the court would declare those limits unconstitutional, which I think is unlikely, but not impossible. And um, as I was saying earlier, you know, kind of which, which reform you like is ultimately going to turn on where you see the problem is. The people that like uh, a reform like jurisdiction stripping 
are uh, people that that sort of think are, are worried about the court doing too much, right? The court striking down legislation, um, progressive legislation, often that um, that that we that people like. Um, and so the, the way to stop the court from doing that is to kind of get them uh, get them out of the arena and just make make these decisions uh, resolved by uh, democratic institutions. Now, other people worry about other things. Some people worry more about the court not doing stuff. Uh, right. And so uh, for if let's say you're someone who's really concerned about the right to abortion, um, the thing that you're going to be worried about is not the court having too much jurisdiction. It's that the, the, the particular justices on the court are going to issue the wrong decisions and they're going to defer too much to, say, state legislatures, which want to outlaw abortion or significantly restrict it. And if you're a person uh, that for whom those concerns are paramount, um, you might uh, support um, court packing, or what's sometimes called uh, in a marketing strategy, court expansion. And the idea being that we're just going to add seats to the court in order for a president that that we like um, to, to fill them, and then that therefore changed the balance of power on the court. One thing that's interesting about court packing is um, there's much more consensus that it is constitutional to do so, that Congress must have the power to uh, increase the size of the court because the constitution doesn't say anything about the size of the court. And Congress has changed the size uh, of the court at various times in uh, American history. Um, but unlike the term limits reform, which has this kind of neutral uh, veneer, uh, it's it's a sort of pretty blatantly partisan um, strategy uh, because it just sort of says, look, we don't like the six to, six to three conservative majority. Uh, let's add uh, four seats and make it seven to six uh, Democrats versus Republicans. Well, that actually is exactly what I wanted to pick up on, which is that some of these reforms, like term limits, like um, you know, the idea of rotating terms, you can't really game it, right? I mean, if you have a Republican president for three terms, then that's that, but you can't yeah. game the system. But there are other reforms like jurisdiction stripping, like where Congress can really decide when to insulate itself. And we might decide that that is a great idea when it comes to, and I dropped a little piece in that I wrote about voting rights, but then probably the same people who want Congress to insulate a piece of voting rights uh, legislation from review do not want Congress to insulate, then fill in the blank, you know, other piece of legislation. Abortion rights. Abortion rights, exactly. And um, same thing with court expansion. I mean, whenever my reaction to this is, sure, you want a bigger court now because you don't like the six to three conservative majority. And then when there is a Republican president for two terms and there are six vacancies, how are you going to feel about it? Um, so I do think we need to, and I'm really glad that you brought this up in a stark way, which is bringing up the reforms where I think they're more oriented towards the short term and they can be gamed in a partisan system more clearly. And then the reforms where I think it's more oriented towards the long term and you can't game it other than who's going to win the next election. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I would love to spend about three more hours talking with you, like just about term limits, but I do want to be responsive to the questions. And there are a lot of questions about implementation. So could you list for, as if we had to remember this for maybe an article that a reporter might write, which of the reforms can be accomplished statutorily and which of the reforms require a constitutional amendment? So um, these questions are a little controversial about, and it depends a little bit about the approach you take to constitutional interpretation. But I'll say uh, in general, oddly, the more obviously constitutional reforms are the ones that probably have the most partisan valence. So I think the thing that most people think is the most obviously constitutional is court packing uh, for the reasons I talked about. The Constitution just doesn't say, it doesn't say there'll be nine justices. It just says, you know, there'll be a chief justice and there'll be a Supreme Court, but then leaves it up to Congress. And um, that suggests Congress just can make seats. Um, and likewise, uh, jurisdiction stripping, the court has to have its jurisdiction defined by Congress in some way. So there has to be um, some some way that Congress can provide and, and move jurisdiction. 
Um, and then as you move sort of more in the direction of kind of the, the more neutral reforms, it gets more controversial. So term limits, um, a lot of people come to the conclusion that they can only be implemented by a constitutional amendment because the constitution says, you know, the, the justices of the Supreme Court shall sit during good behavior, um, which is interpreted to mean uh, life tenure. I don't think that's totally determinative because there are some people who have made arguments that, look, um, there are ways to kind of address those constitutional concerns without letting them sort of sit on the court indefinitely. So basically you have um, one of these uh, fixes is you have a court um, and after 18 years, the, the justices sort of become senior justices and they still get to sit on the lower courts and they still get their salaries and they still get their titles. They're just not part of the main bulk of the nine justices who hear most of the cases. Um, I tend to think that that would be permissible, um, but I also think there's more flexibility here than some of the more rigid, originalist, super formalist um, constitutional thinkers do. And, um, but, you know, Ganesh Siddharaman and I um, offered some uh, proposals that I think we're designed to be more in the sort of good government, neutral, um, you know, not clearly advantaging one side or, or other that we argued could be implemented uh, via statute. Now we make arguments um, that, you know, some of the features of our proposals actually resemble things that that already happen uh, through uh, ordinary statute. So um, for example, um, you know, we have this proposal where, you know, the 10 justices would select justices from the lower courts. Well, uh, there are already things that look like that. Circuit judges get to pick district judges that come up and sit with them for uh, limited periods. And people seem to think that's constitutional. Uh, but those arguments have, have by no means convinced everyone. And I think a lot of people, and particularly my friends who are more conservative, who are more likely to be originalist, formalist, they tend to say, look, you just can't do any of this crazy stuff. Uh, maybe you can, you can court pack or jurisdiction strip, but outside of that, we got to have a constitutional amendment. And I think that's a problem for pro-reform folks, because given the polarization of the country, it's really hard to imagine amending the constitution about practically anything. Uh, these days. It hasn't happened uh, in a number of decades, and it's hard to imagine um, getting the kind of consensus that would be necessary to do so, uh, particularly about the Supreme Court. So this was the next kind of, the first bucket of questions that I saw was, how would we do this? Which are statutory, which require a constitutional amendment? I think we'd both agree a constitutional amendment for a whole host of good reasons and some not so great reasons would be terrifically difficult to mm -hmm. accomplish. Uh, we don't want the federal constitution to look like the California constitution, which has been amended, I think, almost 600 times now. Wow. Um, because that's not really how you want to treat your governing document. But by the same token, uh, because of the political realities of where we are right now, I'm not seeing a constitutional amendment on the table. But that brings us to the statutory bucket, the things that Congress could implement by statute. And you already answered this um, a bit, but I wanna make sure, because there were about three questions on this. How likely do you think, I mean, there's not a lot of time before the midterms, but how likely do you think it is that we might see one of these reforms that can be accomplished via uh, legislation? I think pretty unlikely. And I think uh, in for a couple of reasons. So one is, you know, the extremely narrow Democratic, you know, majority, almost not really a majority in the Senate. Um, and, you know, basically any kind of substantive legislation that isn't something to do with the budget that can be accomplished through reconciliation has to get through the filibuster, um, unless Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema start to decide that um, they want to get rid of the, the filibuster, um, which seems unlikely. Uh, but more fundamentally, because I think uh, President Biden doesn't actually want to do any meaningful reform to the court. Um, he really dodged the question um, during um, uh, the, the campaign. Um, you know, people kept saying, do you want to pack the court? And he really just refused to give an answer for a long time. Uh, I think because he was, you know, threading a, a difficult needle and that, you know, pr the progressives on, uh, were really worked up um, on his left and really wanted 
court packing to respond to what Republicans had done in, in filling uh, Justice Ginsburg's seat and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of people, you know, court packing is not popular right now um, with kind of median voter. And so he didn't want to commit to that. And so we came up with this dodge of saying, saying I'm going to create this commission. Uh, and I'm going to see what they say. And after you know, 180 days, they'll get back to me with some information and then we'll decide what to do. Um, and I thought that was a, a pretty, you know, a decent dodge uh, in it. It kind of made it hard to continue asking him the question. Um, but I think as we've seen uh, time go on and as, as we've seen sort of what he has done with the commission, it does seem that he isn't really particularly interested in in reform and in getting reform out of the commission. I mean, the commission is quite bipartisan. Uh, it has a number of, you know, I'd say, you know, friends of mine who are conservative, but quite conservative uh, folks on it um, who are, you know, definitely, I would say, very unlikely to endorse anything like, you know, court packing or any of these statutory um, sort of questionable statutory type reforms. I think so. I think it's, you know, likely that the the, the commission will produce sort of a a discussion of all these reforms, and maybe it'll say some of these are not really possible to accomplish by a statute. Um, but basically, it's going to issue that report, and then it's going to basically fizzle out, and, and there's not going to be uh, a push to do anything significant with the court. I think one one small area that I could imagine Congress uh, addressing, and that there is still uh, surprisingly some bipartisan interest in is stuff relating to um, some transparency issues. And I know we're getting some questions uh, about that um, in the in the Q&A, uh, including from uh, Lydia Wheeler, who has uh, graciously quoted me a bunch of times over the years. Um, and uh, one area where there's currently some consensus is in getting better disclosure of, of the justices' financial reporting, um, who's paying for their trips, uh, things like that. There recently was a letter that was sent uh, to the court by uh, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Republican Senator John Kennedy. And one could imagine something narrow uh, like that. I mean, that's um, that maybe addresses those kind of financial uh, concerns. Um, yeah, I just want to reiterate two things, Dan, that you said, which is one, when Biden said basically during the campaign, Thank you for that question. I'm not going to answer it, but you're going to hear some other words that are not responsive to that specific question about core packing. And then when he created a commission, it struck me that this is the version of creating a blue ribbon commission where good ideas can go to die because you want to say I did something and that something is creating the commission. It's not actually implementing reform yeah. because in so many ways, I think that's not who President Biden is. And I think he sees the political reality, but he can point to this commission and say, look at those resumes. Yeah. And I did something about this. This is a serious group of people, but I don't think one can seriously say this is a group organized to actually promote a big reform. Yeah. Um, and then the other, th so the other thing I wanted to emphasize that you said, this issue of transparency, there's such an interesting corollary when it comes to the campaign finance world, because that's also the only world where you can really have any action when it comes to money and politics. You can't, as a result of a whole host of decisions, we know Citizens United, but they're actually more important decisions. Um, you can't really limit how much you can give and spend in politics and being too general here. But disclosure is really the only place where there's some action. And the same, I think you're exactly right, right? The same is true on the Supreme Court because we all feel like, look, we had a good government reform. The public gets more information. That has a deterrent effect. It will reduce actual or apparent corruption. Let's have a yeah. celebration. We did something. And we don't actually get to some of the, you know, you, yeah. we put a Band-Aid, but the leg's still broken. Now, depending on time, we might come back to some other topics related to this, but let's pivot a little bit, if you don't mind, to this, a different issue of transparency, which is how we can get access to the Supreme Court. And specifically, look, this is not a private law firm. I mean, these are people who work for the government and we had very little access before COVID. And then there was this kind of revelation and the Supreme Court discovered conference calling. <laughs> and it was 
for me, at least, I mean, Dan, I know you had a very different experience because you clerked on the court, but for the vast, vast majority of the public, you never have that experience. And for me, it was a revelation to be able to sit and hear them real time, even though it changed the tenor of the argument so much. So that's a, that's a too long way of saying, does the court have to open its doors a little bit now? We all listen to oral arguments. Nothing happened near the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, nothing crumbled. We're all still standing. We're still reading their opinions. Is, is this the moment for more transparency of seeing what they do? Yeah, I, I certainly think it is. And I've, I've long thought the court uh, is too secretive of an institution. Actually, um, one paper uh, I'm wor- working on that hasn't uh, seen the light of day yet um, with Duke's uh, Marin Levy is, you know, making a set of arguments about that, that we should have less judicial secrecy in general and with the Supreme Court in particular. Um, and I do think that, um, you know, what the court has had to do during the COVID period has shown us that that really um, it wouldn't be so bad from their perspective to have live streaming of the audio of oral arguments. I can see why they don't want to have the arguments on TV with video, Um, that that maybe would encourage grandstanding by advocates, by justices. Um, But having the audio has been great. Um, As far as I can tell, it hasn't had any uh, pernicious effects that even the justices themselves would identify. It's increased public engagement. Um, and I think that the prior practice of not releasing the audio until Friday and even refusing to do so, sometimes they would do so sooner in high profile cases, but often they would refuse to do so. So the media would say, this is a case we're really interested in. Can we get the audio same day? And the court would just say no. I think that's pretty hard to defend uh, going forward. And my hope is having kind of um, opened the box, it's going to be hard for the court to go back. doesn't mean they won't try, um, but I really do hope um, they continue doing that. They have There have been some very minor strides in terms of uh, accessibility during the Roberts Court, you know, one being the court used to uh, issue opinions and orders at 10 a.m. on the days that they were issuing orders. And then they said, okay, we'll, we'll do the orders at 9.30 to give the reporters a little bit more time to digest. Um, I think that was helpful. One thing that they've done um, during COVID is they don't have the kind of live opinion announcements, but they kind of release the opinions in 10-minute increments, um, sort of replicating the way that they would come out during the live opinion hand downs. But I think that's kind of useful to people because it gives them, you know, a little bit of time at least to d- digest rather than trying to be like, okay, I've suddenly got six opinions. How do, what do we even know to um, think about? I think that they could do more. Um, I think it wouldn't kill them to sort of say maybe even just the day before, uh, by the way, you're going to get Fulton, you know, we're going to get the uh, gay adoption case tomorrow. And that would let people sort of structure their lives a little bit because it's it's both reporters and, you know, people like me, academics uh, who are covering the court. Um, you know, I on, on opinion days at this time of the year, I really kind of have to structure my morning around it and to see whether I'm going to get one of these opinions that's of great interest that I'll be expected to, you know, answer questions about from, uh, you know, do do interviews about and and write about and tweet about and things like that. And it's often, you know, you get all geared up and then, you know, they come out with one unanimous opinion and you've kind of organized your whole day around that. And it's it's frustrating. I don't think that it would kill them to um, do a little bit more there. And I would like to see that. And I'm hopeful that we will see that. I mean, I'm laughing, Dan, because I just on our family Google calendar put the Supreme Court opinion days. Because, and, and, you know, we have to gear up for that. I mean, I'm, I'm generously putting myself in a wee bucket here, but, you know, I have pre-writes ready. I have the, the draft emails that have to be ready at that moment. We got this so we can do this. This one went this way. So let's use this version. And, um, it's not that the Supreme court needs to be so mindful of our schedules, but it's, uh, and sorry, I just got a little blurry, I see. Um, seemingly for no good reason, um, and much more so for reporters, and all yeah. plans have to be soft, right? And part of, yeah. actually, the weird part of having the journalist law school in June is that, um, I mean, when I approached you about this panel, I didn't know if it was going to be a wrap-up of big cases or if it would be talking about reform, 
Um, I've, I'm teaching constitutional law over the summer, and I feel like every day I say to my students, well, next time I see you, we might have a decision on, and I think they think I'm an idiot at this point because <laughs> there's, you know, we've only had these fairly minor yeah. unanimous decisions. Um, well, not only, but anyway, that's a long way of saying they know which decisions are coming out the next day. So why can't we know? Um Let's go to Zach's question. Zach Cohen asks a good question. We've been talking so much about the Supreme Court, and I fall into this trap, but the vast majority of federal decisions are not made by the Supreme Court. Um, What about reforms for the lower courts? And specifically, Zach asks about expanding the court. I mean, we always, I'm in the Central District, and the judges are always like, the work is overwhelming. You know, we need more bodies. And part of it is filling vacancies, but part of it is the question of potential expansion. Do you see that happening? So there is a lot of interest uh, in that. And I've, I've talked to some folks in Congress who are interested in that. And I do think there actually is some uh, bipartisan consensus that there are areas, um, parts of the court system that are understaffed and that really do need um, more appointments. Um, that said, you know, this this Congress, or at least the Senate, um, uh, with the filibuster is not going to just hand President Biden, you know, a bunch of new vacancies. Um, But it's possible uh, to imagine compromises. And that's something that's happened in the past, um, uh, where, you know, you have a a statute that says, you know, there's going to be, you know, four new seats in the Central District now, and four new seats in four years, when there might be a different president, and four new seats in eight years. in a way that you know uh, introduces some uncertainty about who's going to be the beneficiary of those kinds of changes, and um, I don't think that that's a dead letter. I think that there there are people uh, on both sides of the aisle that are thinking about that and, and um, working on it. I, I mean, I think that that these days the smart money is always to bet against any kind of congressional action on anything, uh, and so I would hesitate to say anything is likely. Um, but I do, you know, my due sense is that there, there's, there are folks uh, who really do think that's a problem and are looking for some, some way to build consensus uh, on that. My uh, friend, co-host and producer, Joe, asks a good question, which I'm going to expand on. And it brings us back to the idea of reform a little bit, but it's something that I think about in so many areas of the government, which is basically what would it take? We just spent a lot of time saying, we're not gonna have a constitutional amendment. We're not going to have um, any serious statutory reform. And I feel like I have this conversation on a number of different issues in our government. Well, yeah, that's a big problem, but we're really not gonna see reform on that. And it seems to me, and maybe that this is just too much of a kind of blunt force outsiders approach that we really started talking about reform for the Supreme Court after, it's not after court watchers saw problems, it's when Justice Scalia passed away Mm -hmm. and the seats held open for 10 months. And then it's when um, Justice Kavanaugh goes through these really, um, I don't know how else to say it, problematic confirmation hearings where I remember I was on a set and I gasped and I very naively said, oh, this is over. Federal judges don't behave this way. You don't get to scream at the Senate. Um, A naive function of the incredibly lovely federal judge who I work for, who would never have raised his voice in any circumstance. Um, And then, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away and the seats held open for, what was it, four and a half days. I mean, I'm being a little hyperbolic, but the seats filled, and there is, in my mind, no way to square those two things. I mean, we can have a discussion about who controls the government, but the American public doesn't decide to make a pact that we're going to have the Senate controlled by one party in case a Supreme Court justice passes away at the end of a term, because that indicates road A in one situation, road B in another, which is a, a long windup to say, is there anything that could break the camel's back here where it's like, okay, here's the moment where, yes, we will get reform. Is it overturning Roe v. Wade? 
Is it saying no gun control measures at all? Is there anything where people would say, enough, you're illegitimate? So I I do think that it's going to turn a lot on what this court does. And um, I do think that something as consequential as uh, overturning Roe would really change the political dynamics um, surrounding the Supreme Court. And I think that um, one thing we've seen over recent decades is there's been a little bit of an asymmetry in um, which kind of parties, uh, in which parties supporters care more about the court um, because um, Roe has been such a sticking point for conservatives who really revile it um, that, you know, Republican voters have been much more focused on uh, trying to change the, the court's membership than Democratic voters, who I think sort of took the court for granted uh, for a long time because, um, you know, the court was often doing things that, that Democrats didn't like. But on some of the sort of high profile culture wars uh, issues, um, the court was was doling out occasional um, liberal wins. And so, you know, I do think we're going to need to see more people get worked up about the court, start seeing uh, problems there. Um, at the same time, uh, one thing that's interesting about the court is that ultimately, even though there's no direct democratic check on it, um, you know, the justices, at least some of them do listen to what people are saying. And I think the fact that reforms like court packing have re-entered the constitutional, you know, political mainstream in ways that they haven't for, um, you know, close to a century, uh, is something that's not going to be lost on the justices. And it's something that I think could cause some of them, certainly not all of them, but some of them to maybe dial it back a little bit. Um, things that they might have wanted to do that maybe they weren't, aren't going to go all the way uh, and do because they, they are scared of losing their institutional credibility and prestige. And that's something we've seen a number of times where the court seems poised to do something really aggressive and then sort of in the, in, you know, anticipating public opinion, uh, they kind of just pull back from the edge a little bit. I think we, we might see that happen. And oddly that would, you know, kind of kill push for reform. It's so interesting because, you know, I see another corollary with respect to election laws and, and issues like money and politics where you're not going to have reform through the legal system, you're going to have reform because the public says that's enough now. Now you now you've hit the moment where I won't vote for you. And I do wonder. I mean, this goes without saying, but the Supreme Court doesn't have um, an army to enforce its decisions. It's only there and legitimate as long as we respect their their decisions. Um, do you think that we will hit a moment in our nation's history where we have a president or governors who say, well, I would say another moment in our nation's history where the president or governors say, yeah, I'm not going with that one. Thanks, Supreme Court. Appreciate your thoughts on that, but we're good, which is obviously a, a fairly significant break in our understanding of how we structure our government. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'll say it seems more plausible today than it has in quite some time, in part because of the increasing polarization of our system where, you know, uh, I I think today the court majority is more seen as Republican than merely conservative in a way that was not as true um, even a decade, two decades ago. Um, And I think that uh, it may, we may reach a point where it's really just seen as good politics to, you know, for, uh, you know, the party in power in, in say, a state to just say, we're going to ignore the Supreme Court. And as you said, you know, the court, you know, at some level can't really do anything about that. Um, And the court only, you know, all literally the only thing the court has the power to do is print PDFs and put them up on their website. And then because everybody respects the court, um, you know, we, we read those and we're like, okay, I guess we got to do this now. And, um, if there's a moment when people just start saying, you know, I'm going to not even read those PDFs, I'm going to delete them, um, you know, the court loses its power. And, you know, I think this relates to the point I was making a second ago. They know that. And uh, that check, I think, ultimately is one that maybe might prevent them from jumping over the abyss. Uh, I don't want to 
end with uh, the phrase jumping over the abyss, because I think I did that to the journalist yesterday, and that was not particularly uh, exciting. Um, We have about uh, one minute left. Do you want to, and you can absolutely say no, do you want to do a little prediction round of the last four cases? I can make some suggestions and you can say either I'm insanely off, very off, or troublingly off. Sure, go for it. Um, The Affordable Care Act will be written by Chief Justice John Roberts. The individual mandate goes and the rest of the Affordable Care Act stands. Uh, That seems right. I'm, I, I would put money on that. Um, Fulton, the case that I spoke briefly with the uh, journalist about yesterday, dealing with the religious uh, agency that contracts with the city, does not want to work with same-sex couples to place foster kids with that, um, to place foster kids um, with same-sex couples. Uh, Justice Alito ruling in favor of the religious agency and against the anti-discrimination law. So, yeah, that seems like uh, basically a given. And I think the question there is how big do they go? Do they say something that calls into question, you know, Smith and a whole bunch of uh, religious liberty jurisprudence um, and pushes the law really in favor of, um, you know, uh, religious liberty um, or not? And what do you suspect? They go big or they go narrow? I think there's a reasonable chance they go big in part you know, looking at um, what the court has been doing in these, um, the sort of more conservative uh, justices, not counting, you know, the, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, what they've been doing in some of these um, church-related uh, COVID orders, um, where it does seem like they are have been doing some things there that are actually a little bit hard to fully understand under existing law. And, and for all the journalists, um, the COVID orders were part of the court's so-called shadow docket that we didn't really get to get into. But these are the restrictions we talked about super briefly yesterday where um, churches, temples uh, challenged these restrictions saying, here's how you can worship or you can't worship like this in person. And the court, after uh, Justice Barrett got on the court, I, I would argue got... Um, started looking much more uh, favorably at the challenger's views. Mm. Um, Now, here's one where I really don't have a good prediction on who writes it. The Arizona election law cases, one dealing with out-of-precinct voters, excuse me, one provision dealing with out-of-precinct voters, another provision dealing with who can return your ballot early. Um, Uphold both provisions, Justice Barrett. So that one is one I I, I have not been following as closely because the area of uh, election law is just, I find it a really, you know, I'm interested in it at a high level, but I find it a little bit uh, confusing when I get into the weeds. So I'm going to defer to you on the prediction there. Um, I'm guessing on that one, if you listen to the oral arguments and what the justices said on the telephone, they really seemed comfortable with those restrictions. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. What, mm-hmm. Whether or not it's Justice Barrett, I don't know. Um, last one, because it's 10.06, the swearing cheerleader, the cheerleader who yeah. uh, this snaps basically F cheer F the school, F everything. She's punished by a public school administrator. Um, Justice Kavanaugh seemed particularly mm-hmm. sympathetic to her views in the oral arguments. Could this be a Justice Kavanaugh writes saying that she should not have been punished because of her First Amendment views? And the question is, we just don't know how broad or. I, yeah, I, I sort of noted the same um, uh you, you know, concerns by Justice Kavanaugh in your oral argument. I think that's quite plausible. I think we still need to figure out um, who the other vote would be. I think that we can imagine the three liberal justices kind of agreeing with that. But a bunch of the other conservatives seem to have this view that, you know, children, you know, should be under the control of the school and they shouldn't get to just say whatever they want. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not 100% certain you can count to five on that, even if Justice Kavanaugh, um, you know, goes in that direction. Uh, so I, I, I think there's a good chance that one will be five, four in, in either direction. 
Dan Epps, a professor at Washington University and St. Louis School of Law. I'm so grateful for your time and your thoughts. And I probably talked too much because I was so excited about this panel and being able to hear from you, a true expert in the field of Supreme Court and constitutional law. And I want to, again, recommend your podcast, Divided Argument, that you can find anywhere uh, that you listen to podcasts. I do listen to it and I'm smarter as a result of it. All right, everybody, as promised, that was a long conversation about the Supreme Court. I hope you enjoyed the ride as much as I did. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod, and we'll talk to you soon.